Before we get going with tonight's episode, I do want to let you know that there are going to be spoilers throughout this episode. We do talk a lot about the Bare Naked Ladies pilot for Fox, which you will hear more about. I have linked that in this week's show notes. It is a Vimeo link. Go out there, watch it. Um, we'll also be referring it to next week's in next week's episode as well. So uh, take the time before you listen to this episode to go out and watch it so you have an understanding of kind of what we're referring to throughout the episode and we don't ruin anything for you. That being said, please enjoy tonight's interview. Welcome to the Bare Naked ABCs. And joining us tonight is a gentleman who has been all over Hollywood. He has been the sole director for the Ringo Starr and All-Star Band concerts for over 15 years, as well as directing the specials for them. He worked on the Jay Leno's first cable special ever. He was producer for the Larry Sanders Show. He has been nominated for a Grammy and an Emmy with Robert Altman for their Jazz 32 feature. He just recently finished working on the new season of Mad About You. He edited episodes of Young and Hungry, Two Years of Crash and Bernstein, True Jackson, VP, Greg the Bunny, Caroline in the City, Whose Line Is It Anyway, Dave's World, and the pilot for Ben Stiller Show. He has edited stand-up specials for Kathy Griffin, Kevin Nealon, Caroline Ray, Paula Poundstone, Joan Rivers, Harry Anderson, Roseanne Barr, Sam Kennison, Stephen Wright, Martin Short, Billy Crystal, Rodney Dangerfield. He has directed episodes of Crash and Bernstein, Oliver Bean, Greg the Bunny, Caroline the City, Dion and Friends, where Dion Warwick interviews celebrities, as well as directing music videos for Ringo Starr, Aerosmith, Ozzy Osbourne, Emmy Lou Harris, Neil Young, and Cletus T. Judd. You may think I've just been sitting here listing his IMDb page, but this is only a short amount of the work he has done. If there is a man who knows funny on TV, this is the guy. If there is a man who knows music on TV, this is the guy. Oh, yeah. And I didn't say he has also co-directed and edited the one and only pilot for the Bare Naked Ladies TV show for Fox. That's right. Bare Naked Ladies had a pilot for Fox. It is my pleasure to be interviewing tonight, Mr. Brent Carpenter. Brent, thank you for joining us. You make it sound like I've actually done something. <laughs> you have done a lot. I am I guess flabbergasted. So. Yeah, I'm a little gasted myself. I, I didn't even list Empty Nest on there. Like, that's another one. Like, these are like shows that I grew up watching and enjoying. So this well, is wonderful. A real quick funny thing about Empty Nest, that the show you saw was not an empty nest. If you remember, the girls lived at home. The original right. pilot, <laughs> nothing like that. The original pilot was Rita Moreno and Paul Dooley. Uh, they spun it off of Golden Girls, and they, their kids had just moved out, and they, they sold the name, and then they said, we don't really like that show. So they came up with a whole different show and kept the name. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, it, was, it always threw me, because like, it's not an empty nest. But how about them naked ladies, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of ladies, um, <laughs> yeah, can, I, I, we can jump right into that, but actually, why don't we come back to it? I want to know before we can get going, what brought you into this line of work? 
really by chance, I wanted to, I, I was big in music, obviously, and I wanted to be a recording engineer. And I was in Phoenix at the time. I grew up in Phoenix. And there was no such thing in those days, because I'm a little bit older, uh, as a college program for recording engineers. So there was a PBS station on campus. They took volunteers. And my first semester, they basically taught us how to run the station so they could run it for free. And I figured, I was helping seniors finish their projects. And I thought, there might not be a lot left to learn at school here. And I uh, ended up going to a friend took me into the CBS News affiliate as a as an editor. We got that was the entry level position then news editor, and it paid a buck ninety an hour. <laughs> happy to get it. As I went a little further, news you know things started to change. I was back in dare I say Walter Cronkite was still with us, and news was a little more real, and uh, it slowly became more entertainment. And I lost interest in it, and and saw the music videos thing happening with MTV and wanted to get into that. So I learned that type of editing while I was doing news and ended up moving to uh, Sacramento. And, and the, the gentleman who did, I don't know if you know Michael Nesmith's Elephant Parts video album. First, yes. First video album ever made by, uh, the gentleman who made it, we met and he said, you got to come to LA if you want to make music videos. And I said, I don't really want to go to LA. And he talked me into it and, and it worked out. Wow. That actually might be the long version. <laughs> Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because this Bare Naked Ladies pilot that you, that you guys shot reminds me a lot of the monkeys, especially the original monkeys. So it's yeah. really interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, very much so. And when I read the script for it, that was the first thing I thought was, you know, definitely the strangeness of the monkeys in there, although a little stranger still. The, uh, the two writers, Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg, had come off of a huge success on Seinfeld. They were writers and I think, co-exec producers on that uh and they i'm not sure both of them went on to work with with larry david on curb but i know that alec did alec it's i think he's currently doing uh, silicon valley i want to say oh wow um and there was three of them i don't remember the third guy they were writing team and jeff schaefer's jeff actually jeff was on curb your enthusiasm he still is he also did i think the league and a couple other things they were both brilliant writers and part of their deal on that show was that they got to direct also but they'd never directed before and the producers said you're gonna have to kind of you're gonna have to kind of take over (laughs) (laughs) i think i might have just i don't know i just did greg the bunny or something like that something weird and of course because of their connections with seinfeld all they they ended up getting michael richards in and uh, George Takei, I don't know how that came in. He was he was just wonderful. He was everything you would oh. have sitting and taking yeah. pictures with people and autographs, and it was just a blast. Yeah, no, I mean, talk about a major cameos throughout that show. Like a whole bunch of them right there for a pilot is amazing. Like you don't get that normally. Yeah, and I, okay, you can help me out because you remember his name, the uh, Harlan. Harlan Williams. Harlan is related to Jim, I think, or Kevin. Kevin. Kevin, his cousin. Right. Yeah, we found that out as, I don't even know if the other guys knew that at the time. I'm sure they did. (laughs) Yeah, Harlan was, he was hilarious. And we did all the weird stuff on the bus and and he he ad-libbed a lot. It was, it was not totally scripted. It was, you know, not quite a curb where they just went off an outline, but, you know, they weren't actors. They, the lines were close. Yeah, it's good enough. Yeah, I don't think Ed is not an actor. It's funny because he does end up having his own TV show later and he's very charismatic, but I think the writers veered too far from his personality with that show for him to feel comfortable with his acting. He just comes across a little off. 
Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you know, there were a lot of weird, crazy little things. I like, personally, I wanted to see the sitcom with George Takei and the, the, the black woman. I don't remember her name, but I wanted to see that whole series go. Cause <laughs> oh, that would have been hilarious. Yeah. That was very amusing. The other thing that was a little bit of a cameo, and I don't remember her name at all, but the, the gorgeous assistant to their manager that was at the time was Sylvester Stallone's girlfriend. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Because huh? of course, all the guys were, oh, yeah, we got to hit on that. And so he said, yeah, don't bother. That's <laughs> <laughs> my money. You can just go on home. Now, do you remember the premise for this show? Like, was there a, a <laughs> premise that was written for this show? Like, no, I don't think that <laughs> they took forever to figure out how to, how to open it. That bit with the goats and things was like the last of 10 attempts they made on how to, nobody could figure out how to start the show for some reason. <laughs> Well, I like how they're starting it with the music. Like, that's a great little little catch, like little gap, grab there. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing that it was funny that happened, that, you know, that everybody always thinks someone's taking care of it. When we, we shot the concert pieces in between, at, um, it's now called the Avalon in Hollywood. It was the Palace. And they had put out, or were supposed to have put out word through their fan clubs stuff to people, come on down, you know, we're going to do the shoot, and they'll play a few songs and stuff. and I can't remember what happened. It's somebody at the record label messed up, whatever, but we basically had about a hundred people. There was all that showed up. And wow. They'll hold, you know, four or 5,000 in this place. So <laughs> everybody up front on the stage, everybody close, everybody you know, we had to <laughs> crowd around. And this weirdest part was I was sitting by the, the monitors waiting for and this guy, long, you know, wild hair and still hollering at me. He'd say, hey, Brent. And I look at me, he goes, Mike. I look like, yeah, I have no idea who this guy is. He's Mike. Mike, your mailman. Well, he got his hair tied back, you know, kind of hidden under his hat and all. But he's a, a massive bare naked ladies fan, and uh, it was like, oh, hey, that's really cool. I had no idea. <laughs> no, oh, go ahead. I also, point out all the stuff, all the concert stuff that you saw was recorded live. They didn't, they didn't pre-record anything for the concert. They just you know, banged it out because they're just that good. Well, yeah, that's what they're good at. Like, let's just ad lib. Like, we can we can go out there and kind of just do what. Like, we might have something pre written, but we're gonna mess around a little bit and have fun and and give it our best. And they just do wonderful at that. Yeah, and and that's always one thing that bothers me about any shows when they you know they have real musicians and they pre record. When I first saw what was it Glee on Fox, I thought, oh, you know, that's quiet. That'll be great. And then it's all pre recorded crap. I'm like, oh, come on, these people can sing. Just let them sing. But I guess it saves money. But they, the, the, the ladies, they would not do that. They would just, they would come up with stuff on the spot. They would record things right away. They would, uh, actually, another one of my favorite parts was in that spooky, weird clock thing with uh, Michael Richards. <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, needed some music to make it a little more ominous. And Jim had come by while we were at and Jesse was gone. And we edited over Fox. Um, and the uh, one producer said, you know, it'd be really cool. It's like just like a little... You know, a little bass and they're like, dum, 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 dum. Jim goes, oh, well, hang on. I got the bass in the car. He, he had a stand-up bass out there. He ran out, brought it into the edit suite. We put a microphone in front of him, played at the scene, and, and he did it twice, I think. And he said, what do you think? I said, yeah, that's great. And off he went. So wow. It was, it was, it's the kind of show I loved doing because it was that quick and that collaborative and everybody was throwing things in. And it was a lot of, really a lot of fun. It sounds like it would have been amazing had Fox ever picked it up is there any idea why fox decided not to pick it up like did they ever like 
I'm guessing probably not. They're probably like, nope, no good, no thank you. But like, yeah, were there hints? it was a little too. I think it was a little too soon because it was also right after Greg the Bunny and Comedy Central had not really come into its own yet, and the other, you know, like FX and FXX, all those perfect places for, it, but they didn't exist yet. So I think it was a little too out there for the mainstream network. You know, they had a real big tank on Greg the Bunny, although we loved it. Um, <laughs> well, and it would have fit, like, if, if it had been following up Greg the Bunny, it would have been a great follow-up. Like, it's just that nice, absurdist-type humor that's just a little bit on the edge there that they pull back every, every now and then. But Yeah. And I know you asked, uh, in the email, you asked the question about the end of the show. It, I don't know what happened. I thought I had the entire show. Obviously, something happened in the transfer. It did. It was done all the way to the end. And the, unfortunately, the ending was really fun. They had a big fight in the Chinese restaurant. And as they were fighting, the, the, the angry father does a flying kick. He's on wires. He comes screaming at them. And then something happens, and he gets stuck. And he's just hanging there as the guy's walking. <laughs> walk by him and push him and he swings around in a circle and it was a great ending. And I don't, I don't know what happened to it. it someday maybe I'll be able to find it somewhere, but. Uh, oh, if you ever do, I would love to see that. That sounds great. Yeah. It was, uh, it was the Chinese restaurant. I don't know what, if it's even there anymore. It was at the universal studios, uh, but it had closed about a year before we got there. So it was a little funky inside. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little strange. Well, that was a really different scene. Like that was the one scene where I was like, "Where did th like that?" That was the most monkeys esque moment to me. Out of the whole thing was like yeah. we have this complete left turn out of nowhere into this completely different direction for the show that you would never have guessed from the beginning of the episode. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, the guys, to their credit, they did have to play that song. They didn't do that one live, but they did play it on the the. Um, I'm going to say it must. Been Jap as a Japanese or Chinese? Well, it was a Chinese restaurant, but I think it was a Japanese song. Japanese. It's, it's yeah, it looks like it's Japanese. Yeah. But, so, but they they did learn to play them enough to get through that song and, and do a pre-record of those those really weird instruments. So uh, <laughs> those boys are really versatile. I got to tell you, that's pretty impressive. Like those are some like I can't imagine the the chords are all the same and that the no the no. strings are all the same. Yeah, it's got to be a whole whole different thing. So they they were very. Uh, very clever on that stuff. So did the band approach them or did they, did Fox approach the band? Like how did this come about? That unfortunately that part, I don't really know. I'm going to, I'm going to guess that probably band management had an idea and talked to Fox. I don't remember Jeff and Alex saying, you know, that they were huge bare naked ladies fans and they always thought this yeah, they show up. They, well, they lo they really loved him once they got there, but I don't know what the connection was before that. I I was brought in a little bit later, unfortunately. It'd be interesting to know it, it, because I think the writers got the idea of BNL pretty well, and like there's a couple of things like Ed is totally not a ladies' man in any way, shape, or form. Like I know they were kind of like, here's our cookie cutter type people that we want to have in these different spots, right? But it's interesting because almost all the rest of the band kind of fits with this persona that they normally put out there mm -hmm. um, for their audience. From interviews, what seems to be pretty accurate as well, the only one that doesn't is Ed, like this whole womanizer type persona. And you can tell he's putting it on. Whenever he's not doing that one role of being the womanizer, he just gets really comfortable again. But it's that one role where he just seems to be like overdoing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and Kevin, God bless him. He, you know, he was 
not comfortable acting and I think that shows, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, for who he's supposed to be, it, it, it was, it was definitely him. He was, uh, he, he really worked hard to get, to get the things right. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, they all, they all did. You know, it was a lot of fun. I think they had a good time and especially with Harlan there that, you know, made them very comfortable. And uh, <laughs> it was just, it was just one of those weird times where you, as you're making it, you're going, this is just bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the whole Michael Richards scene is extremely bizarre. Like that takes it to another level. Yeah, because that um, was one of the thoughts. You know, normally you stop time, you come back, and you jump cut or something to make it look like. And they said, "No, no, it's got to be." They can't tell anything is happening. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> you don't know whether he did stop time or he didn't. Is he just, just nuts? <laughs> it's just great because <laughs> it really sets them up to look like they're going slowly insane. Yeah. Yeah, and and they may have been. And I love the whole Tyler when he leaves the bus, the bathroom scene, how that was all staged. So were you directing at that point, like deciding like how people would be set up, where where the shots would be kind of be taking place, and and things like that at that point. The whole thing you know, was very collaborative. I concentrated more on the cameras getting the shots where they should be. But the thing that happened with that was that again, you know, it's got that towards the end they got that full on choir singing privacy. Well, that was all. The guys, they recorded that in a little room on the side of the stage, just ran in with their laptop and, you know, through layers on layers. And so when <laughs> they, had do it, they had just hired extras, they were, they were not choir singers or anything, just you know, a bunch of black extras. And they were really reserved and, and it wasn't what Jeff and Alec were looking for. And they kept, you know, we were huddling this, you know, it's, it's not, it's got, and I knew exactly what they were trying to say. And finally, I just, from the video village back there, I just hollered. I said, you gotta be more black. And, they all, <laughs> and, and everybody on our side, all the white folk went, Oh, shh, no. <laughs> they went, oh, oh, okay. We get it. They want, you know, you want the Baptist Southern Baptist choir and the next shot was perfect. And they did exactly. It's like, come on, let's be honest. This is what we're doing. <laughs> well, I love how they go from on the bus to all of a sudden behind Tyler like that. It, it brings us to a whole other level. Yeah, yeah, they're just popping around wherever they need to be. Yeah, it, any semblance of reality has been thrown out the window. I think <laughs> once once you get past oh. goat wrestling at the beginning, it's a uh, it's uh, pretty much a free for all. Oh yeah. Now goat wrestling at the beginning. I don't remember that scene. It, it, did they not? I think that might be the other part of the footage that's that's missing because I don't remember. I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've watched it three, three or four times, though. <laughs> uh, you no, know, it was uh, well, unless um, <laughs> unless the uh, I've got the wrong version. They, they originally they uh, yeah, you're right. It got cut off at least on the one I have. They they started off with them something about the, the announcer saying you know the bare naked ladies are going to wrestle goats in their underwear and said we're not wrestling goats. Well, they're going to do this. And it was all these weird things, but they had this pen of goats in front of them standing there. We shot so many. <laughs> <laughs> to get this I, I did as you mentioned i did this pilot for the ben stiller show and that was the same thing we probably shot five versions of the wraparounds before fox said okay that the, the sketches were always locked but you know getting to it and it was the same with the beginning they just couldn't figure out how to open the show so yeah you're right goat wrestling i don't think that uh, i was gonna say i don't think i made it to air but none of it made it to air <laughs> right <laughs> But if that ever shows up, I'd love to see that too. Like it, the script is really sound. Like it really kind of works. I mean, it definitely is dated. Um, the the Ed jokes toward the women would in today's Me Too society would probably and and 
you know, Tyler's statements of, of, yeah, in, in today's Me Too society would not go so well. Um, but we're, you know, this was 2002. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a different time. It is. It's hard to believe that it was almost 20 years ago now. Exactly. What was your favorite character on this show? I love Kevin and his weird relationship with his keyboard. It, it, I, it almost seemed like it might have been real. You know, he just, he, he got into that and was caressing and got <laughs> 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 along really, really well. It may have been a little too close for comfort. <laughs> now, was that a prop or was that his actual keyboard? No, that was a prop. It was, I don't think it worked at all because he he would just turn knobs and touch stuff and i don't don't think anything ever actually happened with that yeah it was just a prop now it's interesting because he actually in a later album does a callback to that is that right um which no one ever understands because we never saw this pilot um but in snack time he actually writes a song called snack time where he has all these people come in and talk about their favorite snack and he finally, <clears throat> and all, all the kids do one as well. All the band's kids members come in and say their favorite snack. And since his daughter wasn't able to do it, or at least is my theory, since his daughter was not able to do it, he has a character, a robot character called Zignon5 come in <laughs> and say that he likes microchips. Hello, I am Zignon5 and I like microchips. That's funny. And be- up until now, we're all like, what is the Zygnon 5? Like, I look it up on the internet. I can't find anything about it. I now know where Zygnon 5 comes from. Mm-hmm. That, and the other thing that was nice was, you know, having to sit with the guys for so long. And all. I did get to coerce them into saying, what is the deal with the Birchmont's, you know, Birchmont Home of the Robbie? And they, they, <laughs> that whole thing. Because that's, you know, these questions are things you need to have answered. Exactly. Um, who was the funniest member of the cast off camera? Yeah, they were all pretty good. Tyler, I think maybe Tyler was the wackiest. I could see that. <laughs> I said, you know, it's, it's been a little while. So, you know, it's, it's hard to remember. Everybody was, everybody was nuts on this, I think. Is <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any more stories that you would like to tell about this experience, which is wonderful. And I'm, I'm going to post the link because I really want people to go out there and watch this. Um, it really is a great piece of BNL history. I hope this never comes down because I like to keep going back to it occasionally and rewatching it. And, and it's a part of the history that I wish had happened. Now that you're drawing attention to it, they'll want to take it down. Fox, so. whoever, don't you dare take it down. We will riot. <laughs> Are there any more big stories that you remember from from this experience? No, nothing. I mean, it was all an experience, that's for sure. But the uh, the bus that you see from the outside when they had to ride in to do things was horrible. It was, it was just like folding chairs inside. There was nothing inside it. <laughs> Why they had to have that bus and then the nice bus for the actual inside shots. I never quite figured that out. That was uh, one of those that like, can't we just use the nice bus for everything? But <laughs> they're like no it doesn't fit with this the band image that we're going for here yeah and uh, and the, the moving shot where harlan gets up when he's supposed to be driving was actually shot on the road but there was another driver behind the curtain but, but, but could, <laughs> i'm glad to hear that we could green screen and do i said why don't we just drive it just get it over with oh well okay yeah we can do that <laughs> <laughs> we just pull the curtain over a little bit so no one can see the person didn't be that tough so yeah it was just it was a wild time and We'd do it all again if they give us the money. Now, 
Was it written in the script for Kevin to start playing the exit music on the bus when they switched for Harlan to go back to the to the seat? Yes. Or did he just okay? Yeah, they, all the music cues, although they were played live, they were all planned out like women's pants. One of my favorite songs of theirs, of course. Uh, I, but, I have now stripped that off the video so that way I can listen to it on my iPod because that is hilarious. It really was good, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they they and that was the other thing, you know. Again, playing it live was you know, well, yeah, the the uh, producers in the background. We can you know pre-record and we'll get to speak. It's just they're musicians. Have them play it. It's not that hard. <laughs> they are professionals. They get paid for this. <laughs> oh yeah. The only thing that's not going to go is like if the microphone's not in the right place, it might not carry. But other than that, they're going to make it sound wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. That was the, that I always, that's one of the things I always love about working with musicians. Musicians can't get the words out. You know, it's just, Hey, can you, can we do a little thing? Like, Oh, you mean like this? And they'll play it. And you go, yeah, that, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> now the sign that was at the Staples Center, the yeah. bare naked lady sign, was that actually up on the Staples Center sign itself? Or was that like CGI in later? Yeah, sadly, no, it was a CGI. It would have been fun to see that down there, but, no, they, they had to create that later. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, I think the, everybody driving by on the freeway would have too. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue away from the Bare Naked Ladies script and, and TV show for now, and, unless more ones pop into my head. Um, I want to know more about you and, and the work that you do. Like, which is a bigger thrill for you, or if they're kind of the same, like different for you, uh, being a director or an editor? Actually, the biggest thrill is, is being both because then you have complete control over everything that's going on. And it's uh, the first time I did that was, I think, on Caroline. It's, it was some show. A friend of mine was the executive producer, and he said, but if you're the director and the editor and you tell me something's not there, I won't know if it is or it isn't. I said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it, editing, uh, directing is always a blast, and, and uh, it's obviously a, a lot more headaches. But editing is what actually – that's the last person that touches it before it goes out. So that's where all the control is. And, and um, you know, that we've always talked about this, you know, you can make a great TV show without a director uh, as long as you have a good editor, but if you don't have a, an editor, you can't make a great TV show period. Cause it's, unless it's a live show and they're, you know, they're calling it live. It's, it's gotta be put together somehow. What are the, like you have done so many of the like risque comedies, but a lot of like really good comedies as well. And like, I look at like Empty Nest and, you know, I look at like Greg the Bunny and Crash and Bernstein, even though it wasn't on for like a long time, yeah. and Caroline in the City, like, and also like Dave's World and Whose Line Is It Anyway, is like very different. But like, how do you go about editing? What is the magic of editing to make those types of shows work? And of course, Matt, about you as well. Yeah, they are all so completely different. When we did Larry Sanders' show, I was there from the beginning and, and at the beginning it was more of a documentary style. Gary wanted it to be, wanted it to look like it was just cams, you know, catching what was going on. But then he realized when we got into editing that, you know, if the camera's swinging around from people trying to catch what they're doing, you don't get the punchline necessarily. And mm. so we completely rethought the way it was being shot. The first one we shot, I think didn't air until four or five in because it took him a little while to get the rhythm of how he wanted it to happen. Um, and it was a whole different, you know, at the time it was a whole different style. It was fake backstage and, and handheld. And the the uh, DP on it, Peter Smokler, who uh, coincidentally shot 
spinal tap. Kept trying to figure out how to shoot like the long hallway walks. And he ended up, he was a big rollerblade guy and he ended up putting on his rollerblades and having somebody pull him backwards while he was holding the camera. So, wow. Uh, a lot of experimenting on that. And then things like whose line is it is they shoot so many of those bits of, you know, the improv things and then narrow it down. So it's a completely different process. It's, whose line is it? It's basically you've got a hundred great pieces. You got to narrow down to 50 fabulous pieces. And, and with Larry, <laughs> Sanders, it's, it's, you know, are the shots in the right place for this? And, and uh, you know, the gags working that was, um, uh, it, they're just completely, it's, and it's really fun to be able to bounce around between the two. I've done, you know, huge specials. I, did a bunch of things with the Grammys and the Altman jazz film. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's always, it's, it, it's a lot of fun to do all these different things. One of the questions I had was about Crash and Bernstein and Greg, the bunny. What was, cause that sounds like it would be a very different experience trying to direct around puppets. It is. And it's, it's quite challenging and really enjoyable. First of all, I think I can say this without, fear of contradiction all puppeteers are insane (laughs) as soon as they put their puppet on that's who you're talking to you know it's just it's hilarious i've done some things with henson with brian henson and the the folks over there and uh it is a a real experience they they first of all they're looking at a monitor to see what they're doing because they can't see especially on greg the bunny because it was supposed to be puppets in the real world so they would be under the stage with a hole for their hand or things like that not not necessarily you know, right next to the actor, uh, Crash and Bernstein. It was almost always um, uh, Tim was on a what we call they, they call an Oz around for Frank Oz. It was a, like a creeper they use on a car, you know, to get under a car. Okay, they'd be on one of those and have a little monitor arm on the side so they could see what they're doing. But yeah, you've got to you know you've got to coordinate not only what you normally do. The actor would need to go here, sit here, do that, but you've got to work around a body laying in front of you or next to you or or sometimes underneath you because uh, some of the puppets would require you know, a second person to do hands and things while the puppeteer's doing the mouth and the head. But Greg the Bunny is my greatest sadness because we were, again, a little too early. We didn't have all the channels out there. And we had, aside from the puppets, we had Eugene Levy and Seth Green and Sarah Silverman. as oh, our cast. amazing cast and great writing. Yeah, it was fabulous. And, and Steve Levitan, of course, who went on, well, first created Just Shoot Me and went on to create Modern Family, uh, who was incredible at dealing with the network and, and feeling their way, you know, figuring out how to get around the things they didn't want us to do. But it was a wonderful director by the name of Mike Mitchell did the pilot. And Mike has gone on to do uh, like Trolls and the Lego movie and Shrek, all those kinds of things. But he had done a couple of little puppet shorts is where they got him for that. And, and the only problem he had was he was a film, a feature film director and he wasn't used to television where the producer has final say versus the film where the director generally has final say. And he, he kept trying to figure out why they were changing his stuff after he had done it. Because <laughs> um. you're not in charge now, Mike. That's why. And uh, <laughs> Steve, by the second episode, you know, we talked and I helped out enough. He said, you know, you really should be directing these. And so I did the third episode and then somebody else did the fourth. And then they brought in, oh, now I'm going to space on his name. He did the fabulous Baker boys and eight mile, very famous director. Oscar winner. And so he, somehow he saw, he and Steve had the same agent was my 
was what I heard. And then he saw the script and said, I want to do one of those. And they said, you're nuts. And he came down and of course, being a feature director with huge budgets, he, the first day he was already three days behind, which I never oh. understood. <laughs> but then I did one. It was a lot of fun. So, so we, yeah, the puppets are a whole different world. And, and what's great about puppets is because of course, it's not the real world. You're creating a world. You can do whatever you want. It, you know, with Greg was, well, when he walks, he's almost, you know, waist high with Jimmy, but he's only a foot tall. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's we're going with that, sure. You know, let, let, whatever, it's our world, we can do what we want, right? We'll, Suspend reality at that yeah. point. Yeah, can puppets drink through a straw? Sure, you know, our prop guy says, Yeah, I can make that work. Sure, puppets can drink through a straw, it was whatever, whatever you happen to want. So, it, it was, it was a Greg the Bunny was really, you know, sad because it didn't get to go any farther, and it was such a brilliantly written show. And Crash was a blast too because it was Disney, so you had to deal in the kids' world and you know, be a little cleaner and all that, but because it was a puppet, he could get away with things that real people couldn't in the Disney world, which was also nice. Right. No, it's a shame that in this Netflix era that they're, they're not bringing back something like Greg the Bunny. Yeah. And that kind of pushed those boundaries a little bit more. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it's been a lot of, that were <laughs> a lot of fun that didn't go anywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think a lot of people out there would probably say, oh, editing a, a stand-up show would be extremely easy. I want to correct that. Like, what are the hardships of editing for stand-up? Well, if you're shooting one show, it is fairly easy unless you're going for a certain time. But generally, we shoot two shows, sometimes more, and cutting between them is where it gets really tricky because they don't do everything exactly the same. They, you know, on a, on a music piece, at least you can use a, a click for the drummer to keep in time. And, you know, you can go between performances because the timing will be the same. But you know, Rodney, of course, was, he was all over the place. He would, things would come <laughs> to him and say stuff. And you have to get from one, trying, you know, well, I like this one. When I did this better, the audience reacted better on this show. But I said it funnier here. So can we take the punchline from this one, but use the audience reaction from this one? And, you know, <laughs> all these little things. And uh, it's a challenge. It's really fun. Without a doubt, my favorite was Sam Kinison, which I've, as you said, your kids watch it, so we can't do too much of what Sam said. But <laughs> he was uh, absolutely brilliant. As a teenager, he'd been an evangelical preacher, Pentecostal preacher, and brought in a cassette of his preaching for us to hear. And it was the exact same guy, but doing Bible verse instead of the joke. It was the same deliverance, the same wow. vocal range. And in the middle of the, the first one, we did two with Sam. I think he only did two HBO specials. And the first one was the one that was absolutely brilliant where he kind of broke out and we started it with some of that preaching, but in the middle of it, he said, you know, people say to me, Sam, you know, can you go back? And he went right back into the preaching for a few minutes on stage and then almost passed out because he put so much energy into it. Uh, <laughs> but he, uh, he was, the thing was great about Sam was uh, whether you were religious or not, especially if <clears throat> you happen to be uh, a very devout Christian and, and, and could be easily offended you could get mad at Sam for saying the things, but he was not wrong. He knew the Bible inside, not because he had been a preacher. Right. You know, he wouldn't say things that were wrong. He would point out things that didn't make sense. Um, he would make fun of that. He would talk, he had a bit about Jesus. You know, you know, Jesus didn't have a wife because, you know, after, you know, going out for dinner with the guys, you come back for three days, she's there in the doorway waiting for him. And, you know, where, where have you been all weekend? You know, that, that whole bit. <laughs> well, first of all, I was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons that we know there is a God is because uh, Sam got sober and he got killed by a drunk driver. And I said, you know, I just know he got up to heaven and saw God and went, good one. <laughs> <laughs> you have worked with the whole gamut. I mean, you've got, you've got 
Sam Kennison, who definitely has one type of delivery and, and how to explain that type of delivery is difficult, but like a lot of shouting, a lot of power, a lot of just energy behind it. And then you get Stephen Wright. Oh, he was amazing. <laughs> I remember count because he could get a joke out and I think it was as little as 11 words. And we were talking about it because he hadn't done that many, still hasn't done that many TV specials. And I said, why is that? And he said, because once I'm on, once the act is on TV, everybody knows it. So they expect new stuff. And to fill an hour, I have to write so much material that I don't want to throw it out on television and, and you know, get away from it. You know, I, the one that my wife and everybody's wife seemed to like the best is he said, I was laying in bed the other day with my girlfriend and she said, if you could know how and when you were going to die, would you want to? And I said, no. And she said, okay, never mind. It's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> and he had such amazing delivery. Yeah. That yeah. it was, it was just so monotone and so matter of fact about things, and that uh, were drawn in. And coincidentally, a guest star a number of times. I'm mad about you. Right. Yeah. As was another one of my favorite musicians, Lyle Lovett, who you may have noticed did the theme song for the reboot. I did. I was wondering how that came about. It, he and Paul are friends, and uh, Paul. I, I wasn't aware at the time, but Paul. Uh, I don't know if he has a degree in music, but studied composition and music in college was very, very much headed that direction before the standup. And so he actually wrote the theme song with Don was Helen had introduced him to Don at the beginning of the series. They were in an airport or whatever. And Paul said, we got to do a theme song. And Don said, well, you know, let's get together and write it. So they wrote it. And then when I met Paul to do the reboot, I literally just come from Jim Keltner's house to the meeting. And he said, well, Jim played on our original theme song. You think he would do it again? I said, well, that's what he does. I'm sure he would. And so they got down there and, and Jim said, uh, I talked to him afterwards. He said that Lyle had his whole band there and Lyle's drummers, Russ Kunkel, another legend. And Jim said, I wasn't going to get in the way of Russ, but he said, uh, they just decided we should double drum. So <laughs> they had two legends playing on that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, but Paul would play piano on the set, you know, just noodle around and he was really, really good. And at one point I asked, he was playing something. I said, is that an original and he said well yeah i'm working on it with michael mcdonald so uh, you know he, he he's serious about that part he's, and he's quite good yeah he's amazing like uh, that song is catchy jazzy and it really sets the mood for that show yeah and that was it, it's one of the few times where i've been on a show and i would actually as i was editing i would sit and listen to the theme song as it played back because it's, it's, yeah we know that one skip over that shit <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny like you can skip it on netflix you can also skip it on tv like you can skip the intro and i don't want to i yeah. love listening to it when it when it comes up yeah yeah it's a, it was a really nice nice song that he wrote mad about you it was a, it was really fun because i went back and watched some of the old shows which you know i hadn't seen in so long and and Paul and Helen really fell right back into it. You, know, you would have guessed <laughs> all those years and, and the bits because I've also was married quite a while like that as well, that, you know, things that really rang true to myself and, and things that, that they had. And, and a lot of the stuff Paul said came from he and his wife, who coincidentally is named Paula, Paul and Paula. <laughs> and, you know, the one great argument they had in the show, it was, he said he'd literally lifted from an evening with he and his wife that they had this whole argument and, and, the last bit of it, which I appreciated, I know it was from her, was as he's bringing it up yet again, 
She says, I got to tell you, one of us does not survive this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what a great line. Yeah. And, and we also got the great treat of our final episode of that show. Our guest star playing Helen's mother was Carol Burnett. Oh, I have not. See, I'm, I have gotten halfway through the new series. Have yeah. not finished it yet. But I, I absolutely love it because I love the original series. It was pretty much like the like chorus to my college years. It was yeah. always on. Unfortunately, gave me a pretty a pretty different view of what marriage would be like. Um, <laughs> so luckily, it's not anything like that. But I, I love these characters, and they've done a great job with bringing them back and just being exactly who they were before, but older and a little, at times, more experienced and mature, but also, in many ways, immature. Exactly. Um, as we all tend to be. The, the, the real uh, odd thing that I found out there was Johnny Pankow, who plays Paul's cousin, Ira. Um, his brother is one of the original founding members of this band, Chicago, and wrote a lot of their hits, Jimmy Pankow. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, you know, and of course, then we all know, you know, it's one of those circle things. Oh, well, then you know so-and-so. Oh, of course we didn't. <laughs> and and uh, Anne Ramsey, who plays Helen's sister, dated Ringo's stepdaughter. Oh, oh Wow. You know, it just, yeah, it was uh, that one, that six degrees of separation becomes one degree all of a sudden. <laughs> so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was actually about Ringo Starr. Do you have any great stories about your time? I mean, you've worked with Ringo Starr for 16 plus years now. Yeah, no stories. No stories. What's he like? I, I, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Of course, like, I don't know many people probably that aren't, but. Yeah, well. What, I can tell you the best part is he is exactly like you would hope. Uh, he's hilarious. He's really fun to be around. He's a brilliant musician. Um, but it's, you know, if you've watched the movies, you watched Help Hard Days Night, you've watched all that stuff, and you've seen the video clips and all, he, he, he is exactly that guy. And one of the things he told us early on was when they first came to America because they'd already had all this hype in, in Europe, so the American press came down to bury him. He said they were basically there to, to you know, make him look like idiots. And they started shouting all these questions at him. Ringo said, well, we just shouted back at him and they loved us. <laughs> like, you know, it's a bit about, you know, well, when are you going to get a haircut? I got one yesterday. You know, it's all this stuff that, uh, you know, that they were going to be the, the tough American press and, and they weren't ready for the tough boys from Liverpool and they just had a blast. And uh, they, they ended up, you know, when they, they played New York first and they, I mean, they, they actually went from New York to Washington first on a train and the press came along with them on the train. And he said the whole way there, they were just bantering and having a great time. And he said, by the time they got to Washington, you know, the press was in love with them and they could do no wrong. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's really magical. It, it's, uh, uh, it's probably been close to 20 years overall. Um, it started with, uh, I, I shot some behind the scenes stuff. Mark Hudson from the Hudson brothers uh, put us together. Mark was a dear friend. I've known him forever. And he was producing Ringo's albums at the time. And I, because I had video gear, Mark would always call me for favors. And I said, you know, I never turned Mark down because I didn't know what it would be, but it would be weird. You know, one time it was, hey, Brento, can you come in and direct me and Harry Nilsson in this little sketch? Sure, Mark. Brento, can you, uh, can you meet me up at Cher's house and show her how to use the Avid? Sure, Mark. You know, just whatever it happens to be is going to be weird. And so it was, you know, hey, Brent, I need you to shoot some interviews with Ringo for behind the scenes in this album. And I was actually doing Caroline at the time. And, I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of Caroline. I said, Brent, it's Ringo. Okay, yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> I just wasn't thinking for a minute. And uh, we had similar musical interests. That was the weird part. He's, he's very much into uh, 
country and rhythm and blues, big on country though. And uh, after doing all this press stuff and, and things for this album, because I, from my news experience, I would, I knew how to stay out of the way, but still get everything. And he liked that. And he said, why don't you come out on tour with us? Uh, BBC wanted to send two crews and all this. Just you and your camera. I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We take those big fancy buses. He says, no, take a jet. Well, that even <laughs> sounds better. <laughs> so yeah, we spent a couple months on the road and just having a lot of time to talk and sit and because he's, you know, he gets to a venue and nothing to do. You sit in a hotel for an hour. He, Every now and then we'll go out, but it's not not an easy thing. And then you know, we got into talking about music and life in general, and we just hit it off. I'm I'm a really good audience, and he's one of those people that needs an audience. <laughs> well, you must you must have really like caught on to him, and really he must really like you because I mean, look at the length of that relationship. We've been very very lucky. That's that's for certain. Wow. Now, you were telling me earlier that there's a story that you have about Weird Al. So I'm trying to think of what year it would have been. This would have been early 90s. Let's, let's go with 95, 96. I, I had, through weird sources, I met Judy Tenuta, did a, a special with her <laughs> that actually became a Grammy-nominated comedy CD called Live and Unbuttplugged in Texas. <laughs> Judy. So she said, I want to make this movie. I, I have this idea about an obsessive fan, and it'll be a fan of Weird Al, and me and Emo Phillips were going to write it. There was talk about she was either, they had been married once or she and Emo or they, they were a couple. I'm not sure what it was. It didn't really get into that. But Judy wrote this crazy thing where she was going to come see Al after the show. And, and it was one of the first things I produced, which I realized I really hate producing because directors and editors whine and producers get whined at. And I'm much better at whining than being like that. <laughs> So I don't produce anything anymore. So we did this shoot in this horrible little stage, no air conditioning. It was July. It was hot. It was the first day went from say four in the afternoon till almost four in the morning. And I got to, I cannot say, I know people do this all the time, but I cannot say enough good things about Al because it wasn't for him. It was Judy's idea. It was Judy's project. And he was there for everything and he never complained and was, you know, would just go and kind of take a little nap. And as soon as you need him, he was there and on top of it. And, at the end, she wanted to smash his face into a tub of concrete to get an imprint, and they did that. And, you know, again, wow. never, yeah, never a complaint. And he just was so, so lovely. I, to this day, I couldn't think more highly of Al. And Judy was fabulous. It was all a lot of fun. And when Emo's not in front of an audience, he's, you know, he's just a guy. And as soon as somebody would come over and say, oh, my God, he would feel like, oh, hi, how are you doing? And he just completely became a completely different person all of a sudden. It was strange. But the thing I remembered also was John McDuffie, who did the music for us. Uh, was a great guitar player in L.A. here. Judy said, what do you want in the way of music? And she said, psycho accordion. And that was all she said. <laughs> like, okay. And I told John, and he came back with psycho accordion. God bless him. So it uh, you know, worked out. Just right. And uh, she, I think she entered it in some festivals or something. I don't really know what happened to it after that. It, it's, it's out there, as is Judy. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was it called again? It was just called The Fan. The Fan. All right. So yeah. it, it is out there somewhere. I will have to look right. that up. Yeah, I'll, if I find it, I'll send it to you. That'd be excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Do you, do you mind if I share that with the Weird Alphabet people? No, no, not at all. Oh, that'd be excellent. They they will love that. Yeah, you know, it's funny how 
you just assume that people have seen all these things. And as we both know, there's way too many things out there for anybody to ever seen everything. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. That sounds like a great time. And a little side note, which I'm sure they know, but uh, I wasn't aware of. We, on the Ringo tour, one of the, the, the things that's great about the all-star band is that they have all these, you know, basically they're all stars in their own right. And they don't, they don't play anybody's songs with theirs. And all of a sudden they've got to learn everybody else's songs. And a lot of them, not all, just, uh, all of them, find it very uh, exciting because there's all of a sudden there's new music that they've got to get right and they support each other. And uh, the one tour we had Rick Derringer with us, it was uh, Rick and Wally Palmer and I think Edgar Winter and maybe Gary Wright. And I wasn't aware that Rick had produced Weird Al stuff in the beginning. Right. They, they had the same manager, I think was what the connection was. And uh I think we were going to see Al and, and Rick said, Oh, you go back and say hi. And you know, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I produced you know, this and that. And like, well, okay, sure. That makes <laughs> sense. It's my sense as anything else out there. <laughs> Speaking of music, getting us back to music again. Look at you. The music videos that you've done. Now, I, don't, I haven't seen any of them listed, but what music videos have you directed? Uh, well, the one that was really good for me was the first one I did with Ringo, which was a song he wrote for George Harrison called Never Without You. And I was trying to figure out how to bring George into the song without being modeling about it. And we set it up to look... The, the idea was it would be the stage where they shot the live section of Hard Day's Night 50 years later. It was old cameras. The theater was you know, falling down. It was black and white. Ringo's up there. And so what we did was I put George in the video of George in the monitors of the camera. So what you would see is Ringo playing and then the camera would come by and you'd see a bit of George up there in the monitor. It's kind of time together. Oh, um, wow. Which was a lot of fun. But I, I didn't solely edit, but I was in, involved as an editor with all those early Aerosmith ones with this Alicia Silverstone. And when Liv Tyler came in, th those crazy ones. And um, oh, guys, it's... Those have been a while. Stevie Wonder video. I was a brand new editor at this big facility just doing fixes on the video. And, and of course, they have to test the new guys. So Stevie's guys were there. And we need to do this, do that, change that, fix that. Okay. I said, are we good? They said, yeah, we just need Stevie to come in and approve it. And I said, okay. And of course, they're laughing because Stevie can't see the video. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm trying to be the good editor. Okay, whatever you people say, I'm, I'm there for you. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what all the, what, God, there was so... For a while there, you know, like in the late 80s, they were just like one after the other and after the other. It was a lot with Marty Kallner, who um, is a, you know, obviously a legendary director because of all that stuff. Uh, I'm guessing there was, I think we did some Whitney Houston things and um, I don't remember. There were too many <laughs> long ago. <laughs> Do you remember the Ozzy Osbourne one? Oh, that was, um, that was actually later. Yeah, it was for a... Uh, a tribute album to John Lennon. Uh, Ozzy recorded John's song, How, How Can I Go Forward? And uh, Ozzy, it's funny because it was after the series had been on MTV and you saw the, you know, the goofy drugged out dad or whatever. And he, when it came to music, he was just so there. He knew everything was going on. There was no, I mean, he, he was still a bit Ozzy, you know, kind of funny and goofy, but he knew exactly what he wanted, where he wanted it to happen. Yeah, we got to change this, do that, fix that, do this. We shot him recording the whole song, which was really fun. But the thing I remember was that we did a little interview at the same time. And it, like 
so many of us of a certain age, he said, I just thank God that I was alive and walking the earth when the Beatles happened. Because <laughs> it just, you know, it meant wow. much to him and to, to all of us that, that actually saw that all happen. You know, the thing that's hard for uh, people who, who came after the Beatles broke up, was especially today because it's been so long, people don't realize that it happened within a seven-year time span. Oh, yeah, it was so short. They put out this huge amount of albums yeah. and material. Stones or, or Zeppelin or Aerosmith, it's been 40 years. It happened. It went from Love Me Do to A Day in the Life in six years. You know, that was the growth in that time, which is, you think Phenomenal. about it. Mind-boggling, yeah. 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 Like the, the amount of change that they do in the number of genres that they, in many ways, formulated and created mm -hmm. in – that short period of time from 63 to 70 is astounding. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is without compare, obviously. Um, it's, I always tell people that, you know, one of the one, not one of definitely the best thing about working with Ringo is hearing Beatles stories from a Beatle. <laughs> we we were in Liverpool one time for a show and it was, I think CVS morning show and the girl, the, the woman had questions. There was an audience there and a whole bit and, she said, okay, which Beatle got the most girls? And everybody started shouting. And Ringo said, what are you shouting for? I was there. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a vote. <laughs> <laughs> you want an answer? Hello? <laughs> the source? I'll tell you what happened because I was there. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it, it does get to be funny from time to time. And, and you know, you'll run into people that are you know, the real Beatles nerds that know every little thing and they'll, they'll want to challenge you because you, oh, you know Ringo well. What happened on such and such date? I don't know. He doesn't know either. <laughs> we, we had a great, great surprise. And I should remind you that he is turning 80 this summer. Yeah. Ten years ago, um, we were at Radio City Music Hall on his birthday. And I had made this song video. The Another great blessing of working with Ringo is you do get to know the best musicians in the world. They're all friends of his and they come around. So you can't really buy the guy anything for his birthday. He's, you know, can kind of buy you out with anything. And I called a friend, Nashville, who's a big songwriter, got 15 number ones, Gary Bird. I said, we're going to write a song for Gary's, for Ringo's birthday. He said, are we? I said, yeah. He said, well, who's going to sing it? I said, I'll call all the Ringo's friends. So we rewrote an old gunfighter battle that Lauren Green did called Ringo and told his life story in it. I, you know, been in a couple thousand interviews with him. I've heard it so many times. So we had all of our lines and, and got all these people to sing it. And, and we, um, there was a, a bit about, uh, he, when he's talking personally to you, he doesn't say the Beatles ever. He says the lads, the fabs. He just uses other terms. So we didn't say it, but we had a line about a uh, boy with rings upon his hand caught the ears of a cavern band. Uh, and, the original line was, and John agreed with all the rest from now on, star is best. But, you know, cute little play on words, Pete Best. Hi. And uh, we had done a couple of things through publicists with, with, with Paul McCartney. And so I got a hold of his assistant and said, hey, we got this line. Do you think Paul would want to do it in the song? So she asked us to send it over. And Paul said, sure, come on over to England. And of course, we changed it by then to Paul agreed with all the rest. And we had another one because Ringo, to this day, he still faults George Martin for having... Andy White play on the single of Love Me Do because they booked the session time. George did not know Ringo. He was worried. He brought in a session drummer for the first single, the only time that ever happened. And even when we saw George the last time all together, he was still giving him shit about it. <laughs> a line about the, the songs, were, let's see, the songs were good, the lads were tight. No, the, 
the lads were good, the songs were tight, except the one with Andy White. And I, I said, you know, if we could get George to do that for us, it would be fabulous. So we got a hold of him. He said, absolutely. I said, well, we're coming to see Paul on such and such a date. And he said, I'll be with Paul that morning. We'll just do it. So it all fell together. That was a long way getting around. Then when we went to the birthday to do the party where we were going to play the video, Paul came to the concert and unbeknownst to Ringo ahead of time, we got together with him and the band and they learned birthday. So Ringo shows always end with little help from my friends. Anybody known musically in the audience, he invites them up and everybody was there. You know, all, all the people from the past all stars and, and Yoko was there and they did a great big little help for my friends. And it was great fun. And, and, Everybody ran off, and usually Ringo's gone up to the dressing room, and his wife Barbara's holding him on the side of the stage, and he's like, what's that? And then the guy started to walk back. I said, oh, are they going to do another song? And from the other side, they brought out Paul's bass. It was at Radio City, and the place just went nuts. It was like Shea Stadium. It was just screams. And because they didn't want any of those other musicians getting up on his drum kit, his, his drum tech had taken the sticks away. So they started into the, you know, and Ringo's like, oh my God. And he runs out and jumps up on his kit and there's no <laughs> sticks. And he waits for his, his for Jeff had shown us his drum tech to hand him the sticks and he starts playing. And, and people would say, this is a long way to get around to the Beatle thing, um, saying, well, he, he was looking at the other drummer to see how it went. Well, Ringo told me they played that song one time in the studio. It was a jam. Right. They, ne- they didn't do a second take. They just played it, cut it up, put it together. So he'd never, he'd never played it in 50 years. While the rest of us have all heard it you know, a thousand times, we play it all the time. And of course, Greg had played it many times at shows. So it was funny because, yes, he was watching Greg because he hadn't played it in, in 50 years. <laughs> and you know what? We're not playing it in 50 years. He did pretty damn good. Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, he has had literally a storied career there's almost no one out there that's had a longer career than he has. that's still alive today. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, him and him and Charlie Watts are basically that, you know, they're last men standing. It's uh it's amazing, but it was fun. It just seeing him and Paul together, you know, it's what everybody wants to see, of course, these days. And, and afterwards it was funny because Paul actually sat in the show, the whole thing. He was in the back of the theater, regular seat. He said, nobody bothered him. And wow. Yeah, and Ringo was he was shocked and he said, Yeah, not and Paul said, No, I just, you know, it would if somebody would make a little motion, he would just, you know, get a little shh and watch <laughs> the show. And and uh yeah, it was uh, it was quite a quite a time. I I've been fortunate enough now to have been several times with them all together and it's it's obvious, you know, the love and they're brothers. There's you know, there's no other way to put it. They as Ringo said, he felt bad for Elvis because he was alone. He said, We had Mm. we each had three brothers when one of us got a little too far out of it, it's like, Hey, you know, they give us a little slap and bring us back to life. Uh, you know, you're not so big. There's four of us here doing this. And he said that, you know, I had three other people that knew what I was going through. Elvis had nobody. Right. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is like, so they had, you know, considering in their Hamburg years and stuff like that, about 10 years together. Mm-hmm. And, in that 10 years, the bond that formed, I mean, yeah, they fought like brothers. Yeah. But they, but they were brothers. Like, they, that's a huge bond that, that continues to go forward. Yeah. That was, you know, he always said there were four people in the world that knew what we went through. And now there's two. Right. Yeah, we, we actually were in Hamburg, um, I'm going to say two, three years ago. And I talked him into bringing uh, Klaus Vorman down. And we walked 
the streets, the, the Reaper Bond and where the clubs were and all talked about all the, you know, times he and cause Klaus was there from that beginning point too. And, uh, I had not heard, I don't think Ringo had either. He, Klaus said, well, you know, <clears throat> when, um, Stu Sutcliffe left the band. So I asked John if I could play bass and he said, no, Paul's going to Ringo said, Oh, I didn't know that <laughs> would have been a whole different thing again. You know, it's, it's the things that you just don't know about. Right. So speaking of storied careers, you have had a storied career and it's not over yet. Um, <laughs> <Hope not. laughs> After this, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't asked you any of the stuff that, that one of my, one of the people that's a, a fan of the show has asked me, asked, I'm like, I don't think I can ask some of that, man. I don't want to get him kicked out of Hollywood. Um, <laughs> um, but like my big question for you is, I mean, you just finished Mad About You. Um, hopefully there's a second season coming. Well, I don't know. They count it as a second season or as a like season like 12 at this point. Um, That's a good question. And I'll tell you right away, that was never planned. It was always supposed to be a 12-episode one-off thing. But the people at Spectrum were very happy with it. So anything's possible. But, but it was never planned for a second batch of these guys even though i i would love for that to happen as well yeah it'd be wonderful but if that's not happening what's coming up for you what else what do you have on the horizon well one of the really good things about working with ringo is there's always something else coming down the pike and we've been uh i put together and it remains to be seen of what form it'll happen but we've got the 30th anniversary of the all-star band which happened actually last year they started in 89 uh, and we've got all of the shows. I started with them in 2003, but up to that point, they'd shot every version of the band also. And I've got interviews with everybody. We've talked to a lot of people. I finally got Zach Starkey. I'm thrilled to say Zach was avoiding me. He doesn't like doing interviews. Uh, but <laughs> he made the mistake of coming in for one of his dad's functions and I cornered him and and he was one of the best uh, once he got going. He, he, uh, Ringo said, that, he said, Zach has the memory. So he remembers everything. And he, he remembered the set lists from 92. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, so Ringo had said, I said, how do you want to lay this? I said, well, let's put everything out that we've got. So take one song from each artist from every band. And then, of course, we've got 12, 15 of his songs. Well, one song from every artist and his songs ends up in a six and a half hour show. Yeah. And there were 54 members of the all-star band over the years. Uh, and it was, uh, it was incredible going back to all that stuff. There was a band in, I'm going to say 97 with Ringo called it the British band. It was Gary Brooker, Jack Bruce and Peter Frampton. Um, and, and Mark, uh, Mark Rivera on saxophone, who's not British, but we won't tell that. Uh, but when they played Denver, it just so happened that's where Ginger Baker lived at the time from Cream also. So Ginger came in and sat in on the kits during uh, Jack Bruce's song. And when they finished doing White Room, which was a huge crashing ending and Ginger just, you know, banging the crap out of everything, they get up and <laughs> give each other a hug and Ringo says, I guess we'll call that 2% Cream. <laughs> uh. <laughs> now, there's always something that he's just so darn quickly. We were at a press conference and the woman and asked a question and she said, oh, my dad said to tell you you're the luckiest man in the world because you're married to Barbara Bach. And Ringo said, well, that must make your mom happy. 
<laughs> that's why they got along with the press so well. They were so quick with the with it's a it's a Liverpool thing. They are just so fast on that that uh, it's it's just amazing. But so yes, we have the 30th anniversary of the All Star Band, and then we've also been working almost since I've been with Ringo on his documentary, the the, the biography of all the stuff he because he always said people say, "Well, you're going to write a book." He said, they only care about those seven years in the middle. He said, I got two books before that happened and I got 20 books after, but exactly with the video and stuff and all the, you know, the, obviously all the people that love him and the fans and stuff, there, there's so much stuff. We've, we've basically been compiling and, and hopefully we'll get that into a, a documentary form at some point here soon. Cause it, uh, it, it said to me one time, he said, you must know how much I trust you because you got 400 hours of my life on your shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a lot of tape, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, that's going to be a long editing job. Yeah. And it's, again, it's fun because, you know, you're sitting here watching either Ringo or great musicians talk about Ringo. There's worse ways to spend your time. True. But other Any than that, you know, that you- yeah, the, Pilots, so you always wait and see what happens. There's a, a pilot I couldn't do myself, but I did last year. It's just now starting called Outmatched with um, Jason Biggs from uh, American Pie. Yes. Very funny show. Um, he's got three kids that are, the kids are all geniuses and he and his wife are not. <laughs> <laughs> um, that and, sounds uh, promising. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's a very clever little show. And uh, I just actually, before we started, I got called by ABC about another pilot that I don't know anything about. They just wanted to know if I'm available. So it's, you know, that this sort of work is always a, you wait and see what happens next. One of my friends, a great editor by the name of Pete Chacos, had done a couple of short runs on shows and then he got on Big Bang Theory. Well, that worked out well for him. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. You know, you never know where, which one's going to kick and which one's not going to keep going. And it's, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's a lot like the music business. You know, when you put out a record, it's going to sell. Oh, look, nobody bought it. We got to make another something. <laughs> well, you brought us around full circle. Like I didn't have to do any of the work on that, bringing us back to big bang theory. And, so and I don't forgot what you told me. What did, what does this pay? Oh, um, yeah. About yeah. That. Um, let's talk about that after. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the music business. <laughs> <laughs> you have been more than a gracious guest. Uh, you have been wonderful with your stories. Uh, you've answered a ton of questions. I really appreciate it. And you've been extremely entertaining. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for asking. It was a lot of fun. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll do the reboot of the Bare Naked Ladies show here this year. <laughs> I would love that. Please. And fates in heaven make that happen. <laughs> it's so much because easier it really was great great storytelling the acting was pretty good like so, eh, they got some work to do but they've also got years behind them now so maybe a little bit better now that ed's got his like ed's up done so exactly yeah. <laughs> um but it really it's entertaining i i recommend everyone go out and watch it it's a really well done pilot um, you know, I compare it to the monkeys. If you go back and watch the monkeys pilot or even worse yet, the new monkeys pilot, this <laughs> far out does either of those. I really can't explain why this was never picked up other than it did push the envelope and it really was the pre cable days. I think you're right. 
Um, and today, someone would pick it up. Yeah, no doubt. They got so much they got to fill. <laughs> um, and, and I would love to see you on it because you did a great job with it. So, um, but thank you for coming on the sh- on our podcast and talking with me. Um, I I truly appreciate it. You've been wonderful. You got it. Say hi to the Weird Al folks for me. I definitely will. And when things start going on, if, if Mad About You or any other projects come up and you would like to have a shout out, let me know and I will shout it out to our group. Absolutely will do. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thanks. That was fun. Don't forget. No regrets. Except maybe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.